You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. One, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of Matthew 21. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and today is a special day, as Aaron mentioned. It is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the first day of Holy Week, and that's the Sunday before Easter. It commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It highlights him as a king, and, uh, and it's a very special day in the life of the church globally. Now, I don't know what your church background was, but I kind of grew up in a Baptist context, which I value and love. Uh, and in that world, Easter got a lot of recognition. We did Easter great. We knew exactly what to do at Easter. Um, Holy Week, that was a little weird. Uh, Good Friday, not so much. Palm Sunday was more or less a reminder that Easter's coming next week and to get your Easter plans ready. You know, uh, figure out what you're going to wear, what you're going to have for lunch, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's not what Palm Sunday is intended to be. Palm Sunday is not just a placeholder in the church calendar to remind us that in a week Easter is coming. As I've learned over the years, Palm Sunday is a starting point of the journey that Jesus takes to the cross, and he does so as a king. It's almost like a story within the story, as one person put it, uh, in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels, uh, in all of the Gospels, the narrative as it approaches Palm Sunday starts to slow down significantly. There's parts of Jesus' life that are just lightning fast, but the week before his death on the cross and resurrection, everything starts to slow down, and there's a story now within a story. And if I can use the illustration of a kaleidoscope, a kaleidoscope is where you bring familiar colors, but you layer them on top of each other, and then you look at those colors intentionally, and you just move the kaleidoscope with light and mirrors, and as the light hits those familiar colors, you see something brilliant that you didn't see before. When all those colors are layered on top of each other. And that's what I believe happens when we take time and we stare intentionally at the Holy Week that leads up to Easter starting today. God brings the glories of Jesus and the colors of Jesus like a kaleidoscope at Palm Sunday. and starts to move them slowly as we see Jesus journey to the cross. I titled today's message, God's Invitation on Palm Sunday, because I believe that's what it is. I believe God invites us, all of us. That means if you've, you're brand new to Christianity, or maybe you're just brand new to the whole thing, and you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus by faith, this is something that you're exploring, or if you've been a believer for many, many years, God invites us on Palm Sunday to see Jesus with new light. And as we see Jesus with new light, We trust him in new ways. And as I've been praying this week, I believe that's the word for us. See Jesus. See him with new light. Trust him and trust him in new ways. And so we're going to look at three familiar uh, uh, attributes of Jesus today in Matthew 21. The first one is he has the authority of a king. It's the first thing that we're going to look at, the authority of a king. Then we're going to see that he has the humility of a servant. And then we're going to see 
that he has the love of a Savior. So as we uh, get started, let me pray one more time and invite God's help. Lord, help us to see what we can't see without your grace. We're depending on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's look at his authority as a king. Look at verse 1. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Is there any question of who's in charge and who has all authority in this moment. Jesus is claiming in a very simple way, but a profound way, that he has the authority of God and he speaks with the authority of God. He reminds them of who he is. Look at verse 3. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. This is a direct claim of deity. He's not saying, I'm a prophet of the Lord or the servant of the Lord or something like that. He's pointing to himself claiming direct deity of God. He says, I am God. I am the Lord. Tell them that the Lord needs them. This is the same claim that Thomas will affirm later in the resurrection where Thomas hits his knees and he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is the confession of Christians. Christians believe that Jesus is not just a prophet of God. They believe that Jesus is God. And not just the Lord, but my Lord and my God. He reminds them that he is their God. And then he tells them what to do. Untie them, he says. Untie them. Bring them to me. And then he promises if they just simply obey his word, fascinatingly, everything that he promises will happen. He will send them at once. You do what I say, and they're going to obey. Jesus at no point in this moment apologizes for his authority. He does not soften it. He does not make it more palatable. And he will not do that for us today. Today, in this moment, Jesus does not apologize for his authority over all things. If anything, as we as we journey through Matthew, you start to see that he starts to ramp up and to turn up the volume of his authority. The very last thing that we're told in the book of Matthew is when Jesus leaves these words with his disciples and speaks them loudly to us. He says, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus claims to be all-powerful and have all authority over all things. He says, all of it, all of it is mine in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And the apostles only echo that authority throughout the New Testament. Paul in Philippians 2 will say, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, notice, in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, every knee, everywhere, submitted to his authority. This is what it means when we say that Jesus is sovereign. 
To be sovereign means to have supreme rule and matchless authority over all things, and including donkeys and colts and scenarios like this. In Hebrews 1.3, we're told that Jesus upholds the universe, and he doesn't do so like a struggling atlas by the you know, strength of his power, but he does it by the word of his power effortlessly. We're told in Daniel 2.20 that it's Jesus who changes times and he changes seasons. It's Jesus who removes kings and he sets up kings. Are we involved? Yes, we're involved. But it's Jesus ultimately who removes them and sets them up and deposes them at his will. He does it so well that he answers to no one. The most powerful person in that day, Pilate, who he will be visiting in just a few days from Palm Sunday, will say to Jesus, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answers, you'll remember, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The translation of that is the one who gives the power has all the power. Jesus has all the power. And that means at some points he may answer Pilate's questions and other points he will not because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Now if we zoom out, Jesus' claim hits us in a variety of ways. He has authority over everything. Unapologetically, he has authority over all galaxies. This is what he claims. He has authority over all galaxies in the seen and the unseen universe. He has authority over all life on this planet, over all political powers, over all educational and financial institutions. Listen, from the smallest grain of sand to the smartphone that that sand creates, including like the cheap Motorola versions that I keep buying, young people, students. He, is, he has authority over all of it. One person said, uh, with Jesus and his sovereign authority, there are no maverick molecules. There's no uh, maverick uh, systems out in the world doing their own thing without his sovereign authority over it. Jesus is over everything, over all things. He, that's what he claims. He claims it here and he claims it in everything. So tomorrow I'm going to go to the zoo. I am a chaperone with Stafford Middle School. I cannot wait to, to go and hang out with middle schoolers at the zoo tomorrow. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, maybe it's a helpful illustration to talk about all the ways that he has authority over the things that I'll encounter tomorrow at the zoo. And as I began to do this, I realized how, how almost impossible this is to, to even think about. Because I started to work on it, and I'll just share uh, my, my, my draft with you guys. That this doesn't really work all that well. But as I go to the zoo, he has authority over all the animals at the zoo. The, the animals I'm fascinated by and the animals I'm not too, I don't care too much about. But he also has authority over every animal roaming free. They don't get the privilege of being in the Dallas Zoo. 
I don't know what the weather is going to be like, but he has authority over all of it. But he also has authority over all the weather on every planet in every galaxy. The traffic on the way to Dallas, all the transportation, and all the transportation advances in every time period ever. All the kids at the zoo, all their families, he has authority over, but then all the nations that are represented by those families. All the microscopic viruses that I will seek to avoid by diligently washing my hands. And then all the medicine that I will need to take for all the students that don't wash their hands, uh, that I don't deserve. is authority over all of it. All the lunches at the zoo. But then every merciful way that the food arrived for lunch. He has authority over the people at the board of the Dallas Zoo. I have no idea who those people are, but he has authority over them. But then he has authority over all boards in every city and in every nation. Listen, he has authority over all the people that those people voted for and all those people that they will campaign for. He has authority over all the events of all the headlines of every news outlet that those people will tune into that day. And then he has authority over all the billions of hidden things that will go completely unnoticed to everybody except do you see how challenging it is to think about all the things that Jesus claims authority over? You say, well, where is that in this passage? It's everywhere in this passage. He is orchestrating all things as the sovereign Lord that he claims to be. I don't know who needs to hear this, but I, I do. Jesus has authority over Russia. He has authority over Ukraine. He has authority over China. He has authority over Iran. He has authority over every nation on earth. Jesus has authority over every power in every city on earth. There is no hidden cell out there. There is no maverick movement of power that's happening without his sovereign permission and his control. Jesus has equal authority over donkeys and dictators alike. And many times they are the same person. <laughs> and I believe that this has significant impact and implications for our lives, especially as the world gets crazier. I've heard people say this to me. It seems like the world's getting crazier. It seems like the world's getting darker. And I believe it is. But there are significant implications for our lives. If we'll move it from the cerebral, that's interesting to what it should do in our hearts. We have access to experience a supernatural rest because of his authority. Here's what I mean. Do you remember in the book of Mark when a great windstorm arose? Uh, uh, maybe more powerful than the windstorm of early Thursday morning that woke me up at 3.30 in the morning like some of you. A great windstorm arose. The waves are breaking into the boat. The boat starts to fill up with water. And uh, verse 38, Mark 5, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Uh, the, the writer tells us that he's, a, he's asleep on the cushion. They were familiar with the cushion. He's asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and they said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What they became aware of is that the king of kings is in the boat. And if the king of kings and the Lord of lords is in this boat, he is to be feared above any water that might be splashing up into the boat. And listen, if Jesus is in your boat, if Jesus is in your boat, the boat is not going down. It, it means at least that. And if Jesus is resting in the stern, on the cushion, and able at any moment to speak a word of peace and a word of be still, you and I can access that peace. We can access that stillness in our hearts because he has authority over the wind. He has authority over the storm. It doesn't matter how great it is. It doesn't matter how quick it, it's happening. It doesn't matter how much water is flowing into the boat. If he's at rest, if he's at peace, you and I can be at peace as well. And so that's the question that I believe Jesus asks us today. I believe he wants an answer from us. Why are you so afraid? What are you afraid of? Is there any authority or any power out there that is threatening your peace today? What's threatening you? If the wind, if the sea, and if donkeys obey his words, we can rest in the storms. That does not mean that we put our heads in the sand. It means we take our heads out of the sand. We engage where we're called, but we do so looking up to the one who is at rest. It has authority. He has authority over all things, and we can rest in that. He's clearly indicating his authority as a king in this passage here. And that, let's look on to what else he, he shows us. He shows the humility of a servant. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, when he says that this, is, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, the prophet is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. Here's what verse 9 says. It's identical to Matthew 21. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That, that uh, celebration language is absent in Matthew 21, but it's in Zechariah 9. Shout aloud, rejoice greatly. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. How is he coming? Righteous, having salvation is he, and he's coming humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is what was prophesied of the king, the Messiah, as he enters into Jerusalem. He comes humble. He comes mounted on a donkey, on, the, on, a, on a baby donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But verse 10 of Zechariah 9 indicates what else the king is going to do. And it gives us an insight 
into this prophecy. It goes on to say this. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So here's, here's the peace that the Messiah brings as he's coming in on a cult. The king serves his people by cutting off the battle bow, by speaking peace, and by ruling from sea to sea. In that day, the sea was a place of chaos and disorder. And so this is actually a statement that his rule is going to bring uh, peace over chaos to chaos, from disorder to disorder. Some of you are like, man, I need some of that peace in my life because I feel like I'm going from chaos to chaos. Well, this is the prophecy of the promise that Jesus brings. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The question, though, is this. How does the king conquer from a cult? How does he conquer from a donkey? How does the king overcome and defeat a war horse? How does he do it in such a way that chaos and evil, how does he do it so that he brings peace to the nations? Well, Jesus does it by picking a donkey to represent him as he's entering into Jerusalem. And a donkey at that time, and to this day, it's a symbol of peace. He could have picked a war horse, but he doesn't do that. He picks a symbol of peace. It's, a, it's something to communicate to everybody who's watching that the king is coming with a treaty of peace. And this treaty of peace is available to all who will submit to it. He could have come in a, with a war horse and come victoriously defeating everything in power and all of that. But he doesn't do that in this day. He comes peaceably. He comes on a donkey. He comes approachable. Some of us choose our animals in our lives to communicate if we are approachable or not. Don't we? Some of us pick dogs to say, uh, I'm approachable, come, to, you can come to me. And then others of us pick dogs to say, stay away, I'm not approachable at all. Sometimes we don't always get this right. We think our dogs or our pets or our animals are approachable and they're, they're really not approachable. Uh, one time we were at our church building before we moved in here. And one of our friends uh, had their dog. It was a sun We met on Sunday nights. We were very casual because, I don't know, something about meeting on Sunday nights made it casual. I think Craig was preaching in shorts. I don't, I don't know what was happening. And we were very casual, and this, this family had their dog in the lobby. We thought it was an approachable dog, and as we're walking by it, it takes a big nip at Michelle's leg. <laughs> And uh, actually, I kind of hurt, you know. And so she's, so she's coming in, and it was this awkward moment of Tim, like, leading. Like, oh, it's all staying in worship, and we're trying not to create a scene. And so that is to say, we don't always get this right. We think our dogs are approachable, and uh, our pets are approachable, and sometimes they're not approachable. But there is, there is no mistaking if this animal is approachable. A donkey and her baby uh, foal is a symbol of approachability. 
And that's why Jesus chooses this animal to represent him as he comes into Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm as approachable as this unassuming and ordinary donkey and its baby colt. That's how approachable I am. That's how near you can draw to me. Sinners can come humbly to that, that posture of Jesus. A war horse isn't approachable. But a donkey and her colt show tenderness and show kindness. It shows the very heart of God. Some of you are wondering, man, can I approach God like that? Is God approachable? He's not going to take a nip at you if you approach him. He's going to say, come and draw close because I'm tender and I'm kind and you can approach me. But the donkey not only communicates an approachableness to this servant who comes humbly to help us and to have mercy on us. The, the donkey pictures something about Jesus himself. See, he comes with the same purpose as this donkey. Jesus comes to carry our burden of sin and our burden of guilt just like this donkey carries a burden on his back. The king is not ashamed. He's the only king that's ever been unashamed to ride a donkey into the city that he rules. He's not ashamed to ride a donkey. He's not ashamed to bear the burdens like one either. We are told that Jesus becomes even lower than the beast of burden. In Philippians 2, we are told that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself. The NIV says he made himself nothing. That's lower than the beast of burden. He made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what it means when Jesus takes our burden such that he is made to be sin for us. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him... Through faith in him, through trust in him, we, who are not righteous, might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. Jesus is made a curse. He's the beast of burden by taking our sin on the cross. And through faith in him, we're made holy and righteous with his holiness and given forgiveness and new life. That's the incredible exchange of the gospel. And if you've received Christ, you've received that. If you've not received Christ, there's an invitation to receive that. That great exchange has taken place in us. And it all started when Jesus rode in in this approachable, humble way towards us. That's why when we see in Zechariah, the command to the people of God is to rejoice. And not just rejoice gently, rejoice kinda, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because your king is coming to you. 
to me. Please personalize that. Not just to you, but to you. Righteous and having salvation. Coming to offer you an exchange. The greatest exchange that you'll ever experience. He is the one who cuts off the chariots and the war horse of guilt. He is the one who snaps the battle bow of shame. He speaks peace of forgiveness over your life. Do you know what that feels like to be forgiven of everything that you've ever done and ever will do and how freeing that is? How that causes a rejoicing in the heart. It causes the heart to shout aloud. He rules over us from the rivers of life. And he invites us into this rejoicing. Even as he heads into sorrow. Even as he heads into suffering. In this moment, he is inviting us to rejoice greatly in the forgiveness that he brings. Listen, friends. Though our sins are like scarlet, they are now white as snow. Hello. What kind of God is this that forgives sins like that? We're called to shout aloud to the God that accepts us and our King who comes to us and never stops coming to us. He comes to us approachable and never stops bringing righteousness. Never stops having salvation. He is an unstoppable movement of humble service towards us. The one who serves gets the glory. And Jesus will never stop serving us. And this is why uh, rejoicing breaks out in verse 6. In verse 6, rejoicing starts to break out among the disciples. And this gets us to the love of a Savior, our last point together. Look at verse 6. The disciples went, and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks. And then he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees And spread them on the road. Now this was not a coordinated effort where they got together ahead of time and said, Okay, as Jesus comes in, you're going to do this and you do this and we'll do this. This is a spontaneous breakout moment of worship and celebration. It's it's something they they see about him. He's the king. He's doing what nobody else can do. He's the miracle worker. He is the king who deserves our worship. And they just start moving and start pulling things together. And then they start to worship him. In verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him, they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now this word, Hosanna, sometimes it shows up in our worship songs. Maybe 
curious. What does that mean? It means adoration. It means praise. It means joy. It's the highest expression of joy. It's reserved for the highest places of our praise. And that's why they say, Hosanna in the highest. Our highest joy, our highest praise, our highest adoration in the highest way. Hosanna in the highest. And notice, why Hosanna in the highest? To the Son of David. You see that phrase? Hosanna to the Son of David. Now throughout the book of Matthew, the Son of David is the theme that shows up at least six occasions in the book of Matthew. King David, you remember the story of David? He's, he's the Goliath killer, the giant killer, the little shepherd boy who then goes on to, to care for and help the helpless. Well, King David was promised an offspring, and this offspring is going to rule forever, but he's going to rule perfectly. And the son of David was a term for this king who was coming, this Messiah. And he's not just going to kill one source of evil like evil Goliath, but he's going to kill evil itself. This giant killer is going to kill death itself. And this giant killer is going to save the helpless in a way that King David never could. And so then Jesus is born, and he's born in Bethlehem. What's Bethlehem? It's the city of David. And then six times in Matthew, people recognize Jesus as the son of David, and they start calling him the son of David. And let me just run through some of these occurrences. It's fascinating. In Matthew 9, Two blind men are following him, and they can't see him, but they start crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And at no point does Jesus say, Well, that title is kind of reserved for the Messiah, and, you know, I really shouldn't receive that. Not at all. He just receives it, and then he heals them. In Matthew 12, after a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute is healed by Jesus. The crowds are amazed and they start saying, this man can't be the son of David, is he? In Matthew 15, there's a Canaanite woman, an outcast that is, a marginalized person of society. She comes out. She began to cry out to him. And as she cries out, what does she say? She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, and we're told that he instantly heals her and commends her faith and her acknowledgement that he's the son of David. As he enters Jericho in Matthew 20, two more blind men, they can't see him. But they hear that he's coming, and as he's passing by, they start crying out, Lord, have mercy on us. And everybody's trying to get these two to be still and be silent, just to shut up. But he doesn't, they don't stop. They just keep calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And he heals them. We're told right after this scene, in Matthew 21, that all the blind and the lame come to, come to the temple and he heals all of them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? 
And Jesus said to them, yes. And he says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? That is, from the mouths of the most helpless of society, you have prepared praise for me. And I do hear them, and I will not silence them, and I will not mute that. I will only turn it up even louder and louder. Listen. If you've never heard this before, Jesus is the son of David who comes for the broken and the needy and the outcast and the powerless and the helpless. And if you feel any of that today, he's come for you. He's the son of David for you and for me. If you feel anything of your helplessness as a sinner, he delights to come to you and to show mercy to you. Don't miss this. Jesus delights. He loves to show Love to sinners who know that they are powerless. He loves to show his mercy to those who say, I'm helpless. I need mercy. I need help. I need power. I need direction. I need healing. He delights to show his love to you. Do you feel broken? Do you feel needy? Do you feel powerless? What, a, what an amazing opportunity. What a gift of grace that you would feel that way. Because there's a real giant killer who draws near to you today. He draws so close to you. Do you sense his eagerness and his delight in you? Not only his awareness of your need, big or small, but his delight to meet that need today. Oh, hear his eagerness. He's eagerly riding into Jerusalem to engage in the worst kind of suffering known to man. And he's going to do it well. And he's going to do it for his glory. And he's going to do it to show off his authority and his humility and his love for you and for me. Listen to this verse. This comes from John 10. Jesus says, speaking of his authority, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, no one takes it from me. In other words, there's no compelling thing outside of him, outside of his own heart. He says, but I lay it down of my own accord. He lays his life down. He lays his authority down. He lays his power down of his own accord for you and for me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is why we can rejoice. This is why we can rejoice. This is why Zechariah tells us so clearly, rejoice. He didn't say rejoice quietly. As you go into Holy Week, don't rejoice quietly. He says rejoice greatly. Oh, daughter of Zion, that oh is so important. Oh is like, whoa. That's what that is. Every time you see an O in Scripture, it's not O. O. It's not. It's O. It's woe. Shout aloud, O, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king's coming to you. Righteous and having salvation. He's drawing near at Palm Sunday. And he's coming near to you today. And don't you sense him coming near? 
Don't you sense his awareness of your need? Of your, your, his, aware, your, his awareness of where you're at? And his desire to meet that, his eagerness and his delight to help our helplessness? Let's pray as the band comes and let's, let's invite his help today. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we're called to rejoice. We're called to rejoice greatly. We're called to shout aloud at your mercy that draws close to us. You laid your authority down. You came into the city acknowledging our need, not your need. And it's your humility and it's your love that you're pointing to today, Lord. And we're aware of our need. We're aware of our helplessness. But we are most aware that you are the son of David that can do what we cannot do. We thank you that you come for the broken and the needy and the helpless and the outcast. We thank you that you push back evil and darkness. We thank you that all authority belongs to you. You lay it down and you pick it up again. And no one takes it from you. And we thank you that we can rest in that authority today and we can have peace in the deepest parts of our hearts recognizing that there is no king above you. There's no authority above you. And there's no greater love than you. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.